The next hour will inform you on how cybersecurity is one of the most significant threats to our national security, as well as the battle that cybersecurity experts are undergoing every day on your behalf to protect you, your families, and your data. Welcome to Task Force 7 Radio with your host, the president and CEO of Task Force 7 Radio and Task Force 7 Technologies, George Reedus. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 104 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Reedus. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So last week, we had former Secret Service agent, computer forensics expert, and founder of security company, Cyber Forensics, Gus Dimitrolis, on episode number 103. Everybody knows Gus. He's OG expert in computer forensics and investigations, groundbreaking in the uh, Secret Service history in terms of setting the stage for folks like George and Tom and I uh, to, to become computer forensic examiners. Uh, in the government. He talked about the history of computer forensics being certified as a computer forensics expert, real life scenarios where cyber forensic investigations have determined the outcomes of trials where the defendants have been accused of some very heinous crimes. You know, Gus also goes into the importance of computer forensics, cell phone and and tower triangulation, uh, cell phone forensics being, you know, critical in proving or in some cases disproving allegations of kidnapping, aggravated assault, murder, acts of terrorism, you name it. Um, Gus also went on to give his view of the privacy and security debate around cell phone encryption technology, you know, what Apple is doing to throw out authorities from conducting forensics on their phone and, and what's more secure, Apple iOS or Windows OS. You know, I, find, I found the episode fantastic, uh, you know, being a former computer forensic examiner myself. Uh, so there's something for everybody on episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. You'll go check it out. If you missed it last week, don't sweat it. Just go to your favorite playback medium. You can check it out anytime right at the top of the TF7 radio episode library. That's the role of cyber forensics in murder investigations. In last week's episode, that's episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to the episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new Task Force 7 TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage. You can find all the TF7 radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news on Task Force 7 radio. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums right now, and we 
made it easy to find them all, just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you'll see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. As the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras, encore episodes, and get you other Task Force 7 news and events, and information on the upcoming network too. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anywhere, anytime around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. We have another great episode for you this week. Look, we got a very special guest tonight, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Ms. Jody Westby. If you don't know who Jody is, you're, you're going to love this when you, when you finally get introduced to her. She's a unique combination of more than 30 years of technical, legal, policy, and business experience. She's developed proprietary methodologies for cyber risk assessments, incident response planning, cyber governance, digital inventory, data mapping. She's advised companies and governments on global privacy and cybersecurity compliance requirements and how to integrate them into security programs. Jody's a professional blogger for Forbes, serves as an adjunct professor to Georgia Institute of Technology School of Computer Science, and as an adjunct distinguished fellow to Carnegie Mellon Scilab. She's been featured by CISO Executive Network, Bloomberg BNA, Financial Times, International Herald Tribune, USA Today, Washington Post. She speaks globally and regularly, appears on television as a commentator on cyber issues. She's published all over the place, folks. You can't miss her. She's everywhere. It's my pleasure to introduce CEO, Global Cyber Risk, Ms. Jody Westby. Jody, welcome to Task Force 7 Radio. Thank you. It's great to be with you today. It's been such a long time since we've chatted, Jody. It's really great to have you on the show. You're a true tier one professional, global brand, global presence. Uh, you know, you've been doing this for a really long time, and man, I'm excited to have you here. You know, I really want for you know for our audience to get a good sense. You know, you've seen the evolution of cyber for such a long period of time, and uh, man, you're just so relevant in this space. Um, but you know, early in your career, you spent ten years in the computer industry, which I find just fascinating knowing where your career, you know, how your trajectory you've had, you know, how's that shaped your, your career today? Oh, it's really been the foundation of everything I do. You know, we, we look back and all of us see how our different experiences have been building blocks. But um, when I first got into the IT industry, um, it was pretty much a, a scientific academic program, um, but I wanted to work on the commercial side. And so I did everything from operations to programming to systems analysis and then database administration. My last job, I worked with American Airlines and was head of their um, database management uh, study for the whole organization to figure out what database system they wanted to use. And um, it's amazing that that stuff is still being used today, you know, relational databases and everything. Um, but I, you know, that, that was just such a, an exciting time, just like now with um, the internet. And we're going to see, I think, a lot of disruption soon with satellites. And, and we're already seeing a lot with battery technologies and wireless. And 
so it's been an interesting ride because you get so many experiences and exposed to so many technologies and problems and, and social problems and, and, you know, connecting the planet. So um, my first job, though, was getting into computers and working in the computer industry for 10 years. And, and, uh, and then when I, um, was I became a lawyer when I was practicing law, and then I went to the U.S. Chamber and was head of domestic policy there. And um, the Internet came around, and I was the only person there that knew anything about information technology or computers or anything. And the story, right? Oh, you know, you know how to work that thing. You know, can you go do this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so that's what I did. And then, and then the president's uh, commission on critical infrastructure protection. Clinton set that up, and and so then um, I just connected the dots, and I've been doing that ever since. Yeah, I find it uh, really interesting. You know, we we've highlighted um, you know really strong women in IT and in cyber on the show. Uh, some lawyers, some technical, um, and we really love trying to uh, put a spotlight on you know expanding our career field and getting more women in, into into cyber. Um, you know, in, any advice for, for up and comers um, getting into the field? For women? For women, yeah, sorry. Oh, one of the best attractions is there's never much of a line to the ladies' room at the conferences. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, that's getting to be less true, but um, that's a joke, of course. But um, it's, it's a field that. Um, I think offers a lot of flexibility, more so now than when I was in it. Um, I would be called out of bed to go fix a system that had a bug in it or crashed or something happened. Um, our equipment failed and they had to restart and couldn't figure out how. And so then after I had my son, I that was a, a real limitation because I didn't want to be getting called out of bed all the time. Plus then I was single and, and that wasn't going to work. Um, but now, you know, with technology and everybody working from home and, and um, servicing different time zones and people being flexible about work hours and work-life balance, I think that this field is something that offers women a lot of flexibility um, to, to have their cake and eat it too. So, and, it's a, and it's something that lets you stay relevant with your children because you're doing the same cool stuff and working with the same cool technologies they're using. It also helps you from being a dinosaur with them. <laughs> yeah, I, I love that. I mean, that's something that we haven't highlighted. I and mean, we talked a little bit about, you know, the increasingly mobile workforce. Um, but, you know, it does, it does change the dynamic, you know, for, for men and for women, you know, to really incorporate the family component. And, you know, we've been really trying to, you know, move away from the concept of like work-life balance and more like work-life integration, right? Because, you know, in our field, we feel like we're 24-7 all the time. We have to focus on recovery and self-healing and make sure we can come back to things. Um, you, know, you know, fast forward, you know, from when you started your career 30 years ago, what's, what's changed, you know, across that time? You mean with work-life balance? Work-life balance, um, and it may be even from a technical perspective. Yeah, just, you know, I'll let you take it. Um, well, I, I do think that women um, have an easier time with, um, with trying to have some flexibility with their family, where before it was being in an, in an office 
from eight to five um, to not being able to take off if when children were sick to it was a really difficult problem and there was there and there were a lot of judgments made um, about that um, if a woman had to take time off to care for her children but um, part I think too depended on having a careful selection um, like when I was out of law school and I was interviewing with firms and I was interviewing with some some top tier firms in the country and and uh, in New York as well and uh, I said to them you know I'm a single parent and I and no you can't offer me any guarantees but you know I have um, a very good work ethic and I will do a very good job for you um, but I have to have a little flexibility I can't raise my son by seeing him five minutes in the morning and um, I'll do I'll I'll uh, give to you everything that you need to have from me, but I'm asking you to also um, understand my situation. And I had six job offers and ended up going with Paul Weiss, which is one of the top tier New York firms. And then from there, I went to Sherman and Sterling and asked them the same thing when I interviewed with them. And so part of it is being completely upfront. And, and then you'll weed out those people that aren't going to be fair to you when you, when you get in the workplace. But I, I think for the cybersecurity field now, it offers um, women a, a really nice opportunity because there's a lot of different angles to cybersecurity. So there's a the whole policy angle, there's the technical angle. Um, you can be an engineer, and um, there's just a lot of different fields that you can um, get into. And yet we all get together and mix it all up when we're at conferences and events. And um, I think that's really um, a bonus as well in helping women uh, stay current with many different aspects of the field. I've seen a lot of women move from one from one area to another. And um, it's it's great to have that opportunity. Yeah, you know, Jody, you, you know, you're, you're such a pioneer in my in my view. I mean, we met, you know, kind of before when I was still in the government before I made the, the leap to the private sector and you know you were really you know pushing the envelope you know then um, and I'm always fascinated with you know the stories in your career path um, so I can't wait I can't wait to hear a little bit more about what you're working on but um, okay folks we got to transition into a commercial break here so hey if you're a social media junkie don't forget to follow TF7 radio on your favorite social media platform follow us on Twitter LinkedIn Facebook and even Instagram by searching at TF7 radio and you'll be connected to the extended TF7 family on your favorite social media platform. For inquiries regarding sponsoring the show or suggestions for topics or guests, please email George directly at george.redis at tf7radio.com. That's george.redis at tf7, that's with the number 7, radio.com. I'm going to remind everybody that we're building the world's premier cybersecurity professional network, Task Force 7. We're really excited about this, folks. Tune in over the next several months for more information on this much-needed and much-awaited-for network. We're going to solve some problems together. Promise you, Task Force 7, get in the fight. We're going to pause for some quick messages from our sponsors, and then we'll be right back with our special guest, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Jody Westby. So whatever you do, don't go away. You're listening to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 104 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Redis. 
I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, doll leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So last week, we had former Secret Service agent, computer forensics expert, and founder of security company, Cyber Forensics, Gus Dimitrolis, on episode number 103. Everybody knows Gus. He's an OG expert in computer forensics and investigations, groundbreaking in the uh, Secret Service history in terms of setting the stage for folks like George and Tom and I uh, to, to become computer forensic examiners. Uh, in the government. He talked about the history of computer forensics, being certified as a computer forensics expert, real life scenarios where cyber forensic investigations have determined the outcomes of trials where the defendants have been accused of some very heinous crimes. You know, Gus also goes into the importance of computer forensics, cell phone and, and tower triangulation, uh, cell phone forensic being, you know, critical in proving or in some cases disproving allegations of kidnapping, aggravated assault, murder, acts of terrorism, you name it. Um, Gus also went on to give his view of the privacy and security debate around cell phone encryption technology, you know, what Apple's doing to throw out authorities from conducting forensics on their phone and, and what's more secure, Apple iOS or Windows OS. You know, I, find, I found the episode fantastic, uh, you know, being a former computer forensic examiner myself. Uh, so there's something for everybody on episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. You'll go check it out. If you missed it last week, don't sweat it. Just go to your favorite playback medium. You can check it out anytime right at the top of the TF7 radio episode library. That's the role of cyber forensics in murder investigations. In last week's episode, that's episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to the episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new Task Force 7 TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage. You can find all the TF7 radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news on Task Force 7 radio. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums right now, and we made it easy to find them all. Just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage. And you'll see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. As the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras, encore episodes, and get you other Task Force 7 news and events and information on the upcoming network too. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anywhere, anytime around the globe. 
And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. We have another great episode for you this week. Look, we got a very special guest tonight, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Miss Jody Westby. If you don't know who Jody is, you're, you're going to love this when you, when you finally get introduced to her. She's a unique combination of more than 30 years of technical, legal, policy, and business experience. She's developed proprietary methodologies for cyber risk assessments, incident response planning, cyber governance, digital inventory, data mapping. She's advised companies and governments on global privacy and cybersecurity compliance requirements and how to integrate them into security programs. Jody's a professional blogger for Forbes, serves as an adjunct professor at Georgia Institute of Technology School of Computer Science, and as an adjunct distinguished fellow at Carnegie Mellon SciLab. She's been featured by CISO Executive Network, Bloomberg BNA, Financial Times, International Herald Tribune, USA Today, Washington Post. She speaks globally and regularly, appears on television as a commentator on cyber issues. She's published all over the place, folks. You can't miss her. She's everywhere. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Ritas. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Ritas. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest. CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Jody Westby. Jody, you know, we've talked a little bit about your career and I know you've consulted all over the globe, especially, you know, in the EU. Um, you know, what's the EU up to now with respect to cybersecurity? It's really interesting. Um, I think they're about to take over the global stage on cybersecurity the way they took over privacy when they came out with their data protection directive in 1995. Um, and and basically, I, the U.S. businesses are just completely asleep on this issue. I just spoke at um, the RIMS chapter in Silicon Valley, and um, RIMS is the Risk and Insurance Management Society. It's the largest association for insurance and and risk managers. And they, I talked to them about this new Network and Information Systems Directive. It's really not so new. Um, and uh, some other things that the EU is doing in cybersecurity. And I said, how many of you have heard about this? And no one had heard about it. So it's, it's interesting, the EU, um, you know, when they get decide to go after something and get in something, they put a lot of money behind it. And um, in the last six years, they have made a very big push into cybersecurity and now there are some regulations that impact a number of companies. And uh, there's, there's a lot of action going on over there that's going to have a global impact. And, and businesses need to be more aware of what's going on. Yeah, I mean, what should they be focusing on? Well, the, 
One thing, let me step back a little bit, because with the EU, you start looking into this and they'll say, well, this referenced by that. And you're kind of going, well, what's that? Yeah. Um, that they they had in, in 2013, they had their first EU cybersecurity strategy. And, and, you know, the U.S., we had our um, U.S. national strategy to secure cyberspace in 2001. So here they come out about 20 years, 25, six, seven years later with, oh, we'll have an EU cybersecurity strategy. And they were really focusing a lot on cybercrime. Um, and, and as you know, from your days of being in government, the EU's always been very cooperative and interested in focusing on cybercrime. The uh, Europol over there interacts well with Interpol, and they do a good job in trying to counter cybercrime. So they started in 2013, not with a focus on cybersecurity so much as with cybercrime and, and having um, a cyber defense policy. And then a couple years later, they came out with the European Agenda on Security that was in 2015 to 2020. It was a five-year agenda that they adopted in 2015. And that had, again, an, an emphasis on the policies of cybersecurity and attacks on information systems and criminal investigations. But they also, in 2015, came out with this digital single market strategy. And there they created um, uh, an, an, a European cybersecurity organization called EXO, E-C-S-O. And it's an industry-led association comprised of stakeholders. I, I highlight that because we're going to come back to where that would be useful. So again, it's the European Cybersecurity Organization, EXO. Um, and uh, it's a public-private partnership. So that all got going, and then they started understanding, well, gee, you know, there's a lot of economic value to cybersecurity. And, um, and then they came out with, a uh, communication on strengthening Europe's cyber resilience and fostering a competitive and innovative cybersecurity industry. That was a communication from the EU, and that was adopted on July 6 of 2016. And that really stepped up cooperation across Europe for large-scale incidents. So again, the carrying force forward the focus on cybercrime and, and countering attacks, but this also supported a single market for cybersecurity products and services in the EU, including exploring a framework for certification of ICT, they call ICT, Information and Communication Technologies is what ICT means, uh, for ICT products and services. Now that was 2016. They, they adop had adopted this communication and it included a statement in there about exploring a framework for certification. So then, um, right after that, then they adopted this directive on the security of network and information systems. And this is called the NIS directive. And that was adopted July 6 of 2016. This is what's so amazing. That, but it's gotten overshadowed by the GDPR. Yeah, the no, no one's talking about it. I mean, no one's talking about it uh, no. for sure, right? I mean. I wonder how many people, when he asked, you know, you know, familiar with this, if they went, they immediately went to GDPR in their mind, right? Um, well, that's all that it sucked all the air out of the out of the room because um, GDPR has gotten all of the attention, and and you know, this was GDPR was adopted April 14, 2016, 
NIS directive was adopted July 6, 2016, so a few months later. And it went, and GDPR went into effect May 25, uh, 2018. And um, the, uh, the NIS directive, you know, had gone into effect as well. So it's really amazing, isn't it, that no one has been talking about this. I guess everybody thinks it's across the pond so we don't have to worry about it. <laughs> you, you, you think it's a scenario where they just rolled out two big, you know, initiatives uh, too close together and companies weren't able to pay attention to both or react to both? Or, you know, why, why aren't U.S. companies paying attention to it? Uh, well, my, I'm not for certain, but I have a theory. And my theory is that it's due to this big chasm between the privacy and cybersecurity communities. The privacy people are simply privacy people. And I go to their events and they all talk and they don't understand cybersecurity programs. They just don't. Even though the IAPP has focused on cybersecurity for years, they've all kind of just put it within their own heads about what's privacy. I think part of it is many of them are lawyers, they're compliance people, and they don't understand the technical aspects of computers. And they don't understand, you know, cybersecurity programs and what that means. Um, and, and maybe I'm being unfair. Maybe it's because I've had this technical background and legal that it all fits better in my, my mind. But certainly the people I talk to in cybersecurity understand privacy issues. But my point is this. The privacy community people are the ones that are out there with the headlines all the time on privacy. Consumer privacy, PII, you know, um, regulatory actions. And the cybersecurity really only gets airtime and headline time when there's a big event. Right. And, and so I think it's because the privacy people just don't understand this, didn't notice that it would be important, didn't know it would be important, that they've really carried the conversation and the media has, has not had any pickup on this as well. Just my theory. Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, you know, I've been fortunate enough to present in, in you know, the ABA, you know, um, yeah. you know, the uh, IBA and, you know, th you know, thousands of lawyers, right. And, and based on my incident response and data breach yeah. investigation background, and we are, we're constantly trying to bridge that gap, right. To get the education out there um, to try to get everybody to have that crossed view of privacy and security. And then, you know, and it's one thing to to understand maybe the threat and, and the cybercrime space uh, in the privacy landscape. It's another thing to then also understand how to build security capabilities in an enterprise to protect against them, right? So right. It's, a, it's very interesting cross-section. Um, you know, I appreciate you bringing that up because it's uh, there's not a lot of folks that have seen all of it. Um, and so it's, it's, a, it's a tough one. You know, it makes me wonder, you know, the EU is moving, you know, way faster in some, you know, in areas here than the U.S. is um, as in this regard. Do you think there's a takeover in cybersecurity policy? I mean, everyone's reacting to GDPR in a way where it's like, we've got to do this. It's, you know, huge initiatives in each enterprise underway for that, right, to get ready for when it rolled out. Um, do, do you think the the policy environment in the EU will just take over, um, you know, cyber policy as a global issue? I, I think it has the potential to. And, and um, let me go back to 
this little march I was on about the EU and what, when they started to paying attention to this in 2013. So they did the NIS directive in 2016. And then in January 30, 2018, they laid down rules under the NIS directive. The, the NIS directive applies to um, what they call OES, Other Essential uh, uh, Services. And so those are really critical infrastructure companies. And it applies to what they call DSP, Digital Service Providers. So each country had to go out and identify, they had to implement this in national law, that's already been done. And they had to go out and identify all the OAS in their country, that's already been done. Those lists are not public, by the way. And then um, the DSPs, the Digital Service Providers, don't have to be identified, but it applies to them. So. This really applies to quite a range of U.S. companies, um, uh, especially digital service providers. Those include, you know, the cloud providers. They include e-commerce platforms and any infrastructure uh, type platforms. And so there's a lot of businesses that would fall under this. But they have done all of this plus then in and just now in 2019, they adopted the um, EU Cybersecurity Act. That was just adopted April 17 of 2019, and it became effective June 27 of 2019. There are some articles that aren't effective till 2021, but my but um, that that re establishes an EU cybersecurity certification framework. Now listen to this for digital products services and processes. So in 2013, I mean, remember in 2016, they would say they would explore maybe a certification framework. In 2019, it's happened. Yeah. yeah. And, and so they have, yeah, they've, they've jumped out and then 20, and since 2013 to 2019, in six short years, they've spent billions of dollars and they have been on the march. And so I think definitely they, there's a risk that they'll take over uh, the at least setting a global stage and global actions that other countries will emulate. They may not press their law out like with they did with data protection, where they say any data that travels to another country, our laws travel with it. They may not be able to do that so much, but what I think they will do is establish a framework that other countries, especially developing countries, or those that don't have the resources to pour into this, will emulate. If you look now at the list, go to Google and list and enter national data protection authorities, you're going to see a long list by geographic regions all around the world. And they're, they're copying what the EU's done. So I think that's where they're gonna seize the stage, is they're just gonna sit out there and say, here's the way to do it, and here's the way to do it right. Other countries will say, thanks for the framework. Now, do you think this is going to get more adoption than, say, the you know the NIST you know cybersecurity framework? Sure, absolutely, it will because the NIST cybersecurity framework is only applicable to U.S. companies, and they've made it so applicable to the government that um, that if you're a global company here in the U.S., you're not following NIST; you're looking at ISO. The second problem with NIST is that they have made it too complicated. So if you look at the controls that they've put in their special publication, 853, this goes on for volumes. It's ridiculous. ISO 27002 
is a very simple to read document specifying controls and things you should look at for every one of the requirements. And companies can adapt that to their operations. And um, NIST has just become a nightmare in trying to look at compliance. Um, uh, I don't know anybody other than uh, critical infrastructure companies that uh, are government contractors that really are, are using NIST uh, completely. Other companies are looking at ISO. Yeah, you know, you know what's interesting too is, um, you know, when when companies like you said, when you do a third party risk management or vendor management, and you get the questionnaires, and people ask if you're compliant with the cybersecurity framework, you're like, well, it's compliance, not even it's not even a compliance framework. There's no right. governing body and no enforcement mechanism. So right. just the fact that people are referencing compliant related <laughs> to it, you know, shows the lack of maturity and understanding and just how <laughs> what it means. Which is which is also scary, right? Because people are trying to push um, as more frameworks around the world get pushed out. Um, companies, as they're looking to do, you know, vendor management, are looking at are folks compliant with frameworks that there's no compliance, you know, standard for. Which I think uh, and the answer to that is when they updated their framework. If you look in the back, they did put a good mapping in of mapping it to ISO and other information security best best practices and standards and that's terrific because then if someone wants to say are you compliant with NIST we'll say yes because you can if you're compliant with ISO you've mapped it to NIST right right which is great why do you think the US has kind of gotten into this this situation where um, you know the EU is really driving um, cybersecurity policy at this point because we've had no good leadership at the top of the federal level. Our presidents have, Bill Clinton and Al Gore paid a lot of attention to this, but that was in the beginning days and they gave it the right kind of leadership without making, you know, without getting in and mandating a bunch of things. But, but our presidents since then have, have been on again, off again on cyber. And you've had some people in the government who've gone to our multilateral meetings, who've been the same people for the last 10 years, carrying their same pieces of paper around without any other leadership from the top changing that. And um, we, are, we are really pretty irrelevant in a, a lot of those conversations. I remember several years back sitting in UN meetings and the US would stand up and say, well, we don't agree with this. And people would just look at them and go, okay, back to the discussion. <laughs> and so we, we just have not had the leadership at the presidential level to make cybersecurity something where we could go out on the global stage and sh and set an example and and try to get the rest of the world to follow us. We were in that position at the beginning when they started the world summits on the information society and all that, but we just haven't had the leadership. Yeah, it's interesting. We, you know, you and I are both in in DC area, and mm -hmm. uh, um, every time we go to a meeting, I go to a meeting in DC. I feel like you know, yeah, it's the same people, but it's the same conversation. And then go to the hill, you know, to educate. You've got a whole new crew that you're having to to train, um, you know, to get them up to speed on just the topic before they can start about drafting policies and anything like that. So, you know, the, that refresh every administration and every uh, electoral cycle gets uh, it gets cumbersome. Right. So it's it's this is an area where, um, you know, the ISO started out with the Brits. So with the British standard 7799 that ended up becoming ISO 27001 through ISO, but um, 
you know, that, that's been out there quite a while, and it's a very good standard, and it sets a very good security program. And um, it, it's, it's something that companies that are experienced and, and larger, uh, more well-versed on what cybersecurity programs really mean and what, they, or what activities are comprised in them, that they have looked to this for quite a while, but the U.S. really had an opportunity. Um, the NIST materials are world-class materials, but they've just now gotten to be, um, uh, with their focus on trying to make certain parts of them mandatory, I think it's, it's getting out of hand. And, and eight, as I said before, 853, I think, was always out of control. But um, we, we just have not done a good job on this, and it's going to end up hurting our businesses, I think. I mean, so you were just at RIMS, right, up in Silicon Valley. And, and uh, you know, when the cybersecurity framework just came out, you know, when they came out, the administration at the time was really pushing um, cyber insurance as a potential incentive for adoption for the cybersecurity framework. Is yeah. that still a conversation? Um, or is that, are we moved completely past that at this point? No, I mean, I, so I worked a lot with the insurance industry. Um, and and the clients, so the risk managers and and leading brokers um, are who we've worked with the most. And with insurance, they early on, I went to them uh, with a very large engineering company here um, in DC. They're a global company though, and said, "Let us build an actuarial database for you on cyber, so that you can start." You've got all these great engineers. Was that? And you know what they said? Eh, we don't want that. We just want to get market share. And so only now <laughs> they started trying to collect all this because they started to have to pay claims. But the point is that insurance companies have not done a good job in underwriting. They've not figured out how to do it well. Um, there are now a bunch of companies out there saying, we'll write an algorithm, we'll go scan the internet, we'll tell you what's what, and well, good luck with that. But um, they have clearly, though, the insurance companies know that having a good cybersecurity program is going to minimize their risk or at least mitigate some of the harm that would happen from an incident. So the insurance companies have been all over cyber. It's been the fastest growing field in insurance. It's been growing like something like 26 to 30% a year for the last several years. And, but there are also the claims. When WannaCry and NotPetya happened, that scared the insurance industry because those attacks for at least some companies have been reported at between 300 to 600 million dollars in business interruption losses and um, so they're now starting to focus on information security the need for assessments regular assessments and the need to really manage a security program so i think they're very much a part of the market force they're probably as much or equal to the market force as the plaintiffs bar in bringing lawsuits yeah, I find I find that part of the conversation fascinating, right? Ransomware, you know, in terms of um, how it changed the insurance industry, you know, you for the first time, you know, in cyber and in insurance, you've got cross sector, cross border threats that happen at the same time. So, you know, they can't, you know, the folk, you know, they can't um, count on a diversified portfolio to spread their risk when it comes to ransomware because it can hit anybody at any time and at the same time, right? right. Which is scary. Yeah. Uh, 
Well, Jody, we're going to take another commercial break to, to hear from our sponsors, but don't go away, folks. We'll be right back with more from our special guest, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Jody Westby. You're listening to, the, to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Hello, everyone. Welcome to episode number 104 of Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. I'm Andy Bonello, pinch hitting for George Redis. I want to emphasize that all opinions expressed on this show are my own and not that of my present or past employers. I'll never disclose any sensitive intelligence that I've been privileged to as a result of my current employment, and I'll never knowingly disclose any classified information related to any security clearances I presently hold or have held in the past with the United States government. And nothing I say during the show should be construed as legal or financial advice. Before we get started, I want to remind everyone that you can go online at the Cybersecurity Hub and read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at their very cool website, www.cshub.com. The Cybersecurity Hub is an online news source for global cybersecurity professionals and business leaders who leverage technology and services to secure their networks. The media professionals at the Cybersecurity Hub are dedicated to providing the latest industry news, thought leadership, and analysis in the cybersecurity space. So again, to check out a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news, go to the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. That's the Cybersecurity Hub at cshub.com. So last week, we had former Secret Service agent, computer forensics expert, and founder of security company, Cyber Forensics, Gus Dimitrolis, on episode number 103. Everybody knows Gus. He's an OG expert in computer forensics and investigations, groundbreaking in the uh, Secret Service history in terms of setting the stage for folks like George and Tom and I uh, to, to become computer forensic examiners. Uh, in the government. He talked about the history of computer forensics, being certified as a computer forensics expert, real-life scenarios where cyber forensic investigations have determined the outcomes of trials where the defendants have been accused of some very heinous crimes. You know, Gus also goes into the importance of computer forensics, cell phone and and tower triangulation, uh, cell phone forensics being, you know, critical in proving or in some cases disproving allegations of kidnapping, aggravated assault, murder, acts of terrorism, you name it. Um, Gus also went on to give his view of the privacy and security debate around cell phone encryption technology, you know, what Apple's doing to throw out authorities from conducting forensics on their phone and, and what's more secure, Apple iOS or Windows OS. You know, I, find, I found the episode fantastic, uh, you know, being a former computer forensic examiner myself. Uh, so there's something for everybody on episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. You'll go check it out. If you missed it last week, don't sweat it. Just go to your favorite playback medium. You can check it out anytime right at the top of the TF7 radio episode library. That's the role of cyber forensics in murder investigations. Last week's episode, that's episode 103 of Task Force 7 Radio. Well, if you're listening to us live on Voice America right now, or maybe someone just sent you a link to the episode, you might be wondering how you can listen to all previous Task Force 7 radio episodes on playback. Just go to our new Task Force 7 TF7 radio site at www.tf7radio.com and hit the episode tab at the top of the homepage. You can find all the TF7 radio episodes right at your fingertips. You can also search our guest library, which is a most impressive list of some of the most prolific cybersecurity professionals in the world. And of course, we have our news section as well, where you can check out all the latest cybersecurity news on Task Force 7 radio. We're on at least 11 different playback mediums right now, and we 
made it easy to find them all, just hit the subscribe button at the top right of the homepage, and you'll see the entire selection of playback mediums. And most importantly, you can subscribe to our show right from the TF7 radio website, which is the best way to stay connected to the TF7 family. This way you get all the TF7 radio updates right from the site. As the site gets more robust, you'll get notified about TF7 extras, encore episodes, and get you other Task Force 7 news and events, and information on the upcoming network too. So check us out, folks, www.tf7radio.com to hear any of our episodes at your convenience 24-7, 365, anywhere, anytime around the globe. And as always, whatever you do, don't forget to subscribe. We love it when you subscribe. We have another great episode for you this week. Look, we got a very special guest tonight, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Miss Jody Westby. If you don't know who Jody is, you're, you're going to love this when you, when you finally get introduced to her. She's a unique combination of more than 30 years of technical, legal, policy, and business experience. She's developed proprietary methodologies for cyber risk assessments, incident response planning, cyber governance, digital inventory, data mapping. She's advised companies and governments on global privacy and cybersecurity compliance requirements and how to integrate them into security programs. Jody's a professional blogger for Forbes, serves as an adjunct professor at Georgia Institute of Technology School of Computer Science, and as an adjunct distinguished fellow at Carnegie Mellon SciLab. She's been featured by CISO Executive Network, Bloomberg BNA, Financial Times, International Herald Tribune, USA Today, Washington Post. She speaks globally and regularly, appears on television as a commentator on cyber issues. She's published all over the place, folks. You can't miss her. She's everywhere. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are listening to Task Force 7 Radio with George Redis. If you'd like to find out more about our program, please visit the website at taskforce7radio.com. Again, that's taskforce7 with the number 7, radio.com. Now, back to this week's show. Here again is your host, George Redis. Welcome back to Task Force 7 Radio, the voice of cybersecurity. We're back with our special guest, CEO of Global Cyber Risk, Jody Westby. Jody, I really find this topic of um, the secretive directive in the EU that folks aren't paying attention to NIS. You know, I, I, I'd love to, for you to explain a little bit more for the audience, you know, your thoughts on if this presents a threat to U.S. businesses. Um, well, thanks. Uh, well, it's only secretive in the sense that we haven't been paying attention to it and nobody's been reporting on it. So, right, right, so you're, you're ahead of the curve there. It's all very open out on the Internet. The EU's got a number of great sites that provide information about it. But the NIS directive, um, so let's back up and say, well, does it, because people say, does it matter to me? Well, it matters if you're what they call an OES and other essential services. And uh, if you are uh, a DPS or a DSP, a data service, a digital service provider, can't talk all of a sudden. 
Um, so OES are the critical infrastructure uh, companies, and that's pretty much consistent with what we call critical infrastructure. And they have some guidelines, you know, essential for critical societal and economic activities, um, where it would have a significant disruptive effect, and that incident would could disrupt society, could disrupt um, uh, the service to uh, create a bad situation. Those are the OAS, and they have been identified. There are some that it, it, you'll first look at it and say, "Oh, well, it doesn't include us." Like um, the communication services and internet service providers. There, but any of these others are covered under other directives, and the NIS directive makes clear that they have to meet the level of the NIS directive. So it really swoops them sweeps them in as well. The digital service providers are the search engines, cloud computing services, and online marketplaces. And of course, it's the devil's in the definition. And so search engines um, include processing of transactions, aggregations of data, profiling of users, app stores, um, the uh, computing services, any service that allows access to a scalable or elastic pool of resources. And they specifically noted that would include our infrastructure as a service, platform as a service, software as a service. So that covers a, a number of companies. And then an online marketplace means any service or site that allows users to conclude online sales or service contracts with traders, either on their website or on a site that uses an online marketplace. So you could be a company that's using, uh, you know, an e-commerce platform that's been created, but you're still um, a, a digital service provider. It's not just the platform, it's yeah. you too. And that really includes everybody in an e-commerce site where they're interacting and offering something out there to the public, um, except for third parties that, so they make it very clear, if you're a third party site that's just comparing prices, for example, between one e-commerce site and another, that doesn't include you because you're not really offering anything, you're just directing people to sites. But otherwise, um, it, if you're a, an e-commerce site, you're an online marketplace. So it, it has a much broader um, uh, collection of companies within the NIS directive than I think people understand. So again, it's the search engines, cloud computing services, and, and online marketplaces. Yeah, I mean, that sounds like every new company that's not brick and mortar, right? I mean, it, it excludes, it, ex, it does exclude digital service providers with less than 50 employees and not more than 10 million in revenue. Okay. But, but the minute you're up there um, with 10 million, you're going to be within the scope of this directive. Yeah. Is, is that the only tier or is there another level after this? No, no, that's the only tier. No. So what do you think the impact's going to be then on, on U.S. companies? Well, um, it's going to, if you're an OES, um, another essential service provider, then it requires them to meet certain security requirements and to report incidents. And the trick here is that DSPs also have to meet security requirements and notification and, um, uh, requirements. 
but the thing that's that's really always mucks it up in the EU is under the NIS directive, member states may adopt or maintain provisions requiring a higher level of security. So like they, they want to be a un European Union and act like they're a United States, but then they let the states trump the EU. So like Germany, yes, they've adopted the data protection regulation, but Germany has 16 data protection authorities. They could have 16 NIS authorities if they wanted to. So as this gets rolled out, um, it could become more and more complicated. But in any, any event, let's just, where it is now is that there are security requirements and notification requirements. And the member states, what's more? The member states are mandated to ensure that these critical infrastructure companies manage risks posed to the security of their network and systems. And they must ensure that these companies minimize the impact of incidents and the notification is as required. And to do all that, the directive empowers member states to get ready, fasten your seatbelt, assess the compliance of the OES and compel them to provide information necessary for that assessment and evidence of effective implementation and to issue binding instructions to these companies to remedy deficiencies. So you, you've got the government in your computer room and in your business and with confidential and highly critical uh, system information that you would have to provide them to show that you uh, are, are in compliance with this NIS directive. So it, it can be not only a directive requiring companies to take certain actions and spend money and get their security program in shape and make sure they're notifying, it can also allows the government to get in there and say, and tell us. And so you've got your corporate data in the government computers. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I wonder how people feel about this once they really understand it. I mean, this seems to be like everybody, every country wants to kind of overreach here, you know. And well, we have. Yeah, the DHS has, has foamed at the mouth trying to get into our critical infrastructure companies. And we've always pushed back and said, thank you. We don't need a government agent in our computer rooms. But this is just bang. It happened over in Europe. Done. So. So now that we know this is impact, right? What, what can what can U.S. companies do to get ready for the NIS directive? Um, well, there's several things that they uh, would need to do, and and one thing is is to get involved in the groups that we talked about. Remember, I mentioned the um, European Cybersecurity Organization earlier. That's a that's a a private sector stakeholder group, public-private group. So if you are within the, the scope of the NIS directive, then you want to get involved in that um, group so that you can be informed, plus have your voice heard by them when they're doing this. Um, you'll, you'll also want to identify where in the member states you would be doing business. Um, so you could have, a, you know, a... a maybe your operations don't extend throughout the EU, it's just two or three countries. And then if you're two or three countries, you have to pick the primary one and register with them. Um, if you um, haven't done that, then um, if you're in the US and are, and are not operating over in Europe with 
physical presence, you need to then designate a national authority and identify, assert um, every member state has to establish a CSIRT, a Computer Security Incident Response Team, CSIRT. And so you, well, U.S. company would need to designate a national authority and identify a, a CSIRT where they're doing business. So that's certainly something that the uh, digital service providers should do. Um, there's there's a, a, a monitoring and things with the, the EU Cybersecurity Act and the certification framework that's getting underway and just starting to, you know, ramp up and roll out. And you want to get involved in, in that as well so that you can um, be learning about how this could impact your business and provide appropriate feedback. On, on the NIS directive, there are requirements for technical requirements and for organizational requirements, similar to HIPAA. So our HIPAA requires uh, our health, that's our health um, uh, security law for, for providers of healthcare services, but it requires um, technical, organizational, um, and administrative type controls. And so does the NIS directive. So US companies, need to be conducting a comprehensive risk assessment against international standards, I'd pick ISO. They need to make sure they have good inventories of their assets and know what devices and services are needed. Um, they need to review their intrusion detection and prevention um, programs and their event management, what they're doing for log analysis. Right. You can't do very good incident response if you don't have any <laughs> logs to analyze. That's and, it, turn, everything, and, turn the logs on. Uh-huh. And then review the backup and recovery plans, their business continuity disaster recovery plans, test them. Because um, when these authorities come in and you don't have assessments, you haven't don't have inventories of your data, you don't have good incident response plans, you don't have good log analysis, you don't have tested backup recovery, then that's when people get in trouble. I mean, look at ransomware today. Ransomware has been so successful, the criminals have just run away to the banks with it because in large part, people aren't able to back up their systems and restore them. If you can restore your system, you can just tell the ransomware people to go find another place and just restore your system and go on about business. But um, these government authorities that are going to be looking at compliance with this NIS directive those are, they're going to hit those critical points and say, what are you doing for this and that? And so you better, much better off to start now paying attention to what companies haven't really wanted to spend money on or haven't really wanted to pay that much attention to, such as the risk assessments and the inventory development and, and their testing and uh, backup and recovery and, and incident response, because those are, are the real critical touch points. And if they can do those things, uh, well, they're going to at least be far ahead of the game with the authorities when they come around. Yeah, it's great advice, Jody. I really appreciate you coming onto the show tonight. Thank you so much. My pleasure. Thank you. All right, folks, it's time for us to bounce up on out of here. Before I go, I want to remind our listeners to visit the Cybersecurity Hub to read a recap of tonight's show and get other up-to-date cybersecurity breaking news at www.cshub.com. That's a cybersecurity hub at cshub.com. Thanks for tuning in. You're listening to Task Force 7, <clears throat> the voice of cybersecurity. Stay frosty out there. Thank you for tuning in this week to Task Force 7 Radio. 
To learn more about Task Force 7 Radio, please visit our website at taskforce7radio.com. Be sure to join your host, George Reedus, again next Monday at 8 p.m. Eastern Time, 5 p.m. Pacific Time on the Voice America Business Channel.